Shabbat Shalom. Forty years ago this week, my father took me and my brothers to our very first rock concert. Together with 94,000 other fans at the Los Angeles Coliseum, we saw the Rolling Stones promote their latest album, Tattoo You. I will never forget the sight of my father covering his ears as the music blared, the mob of humanity following Mick Jagger's every move, and the three-quarter sleeve concert t-shirt that I wore until my mother declared it fit only for a dust rag. And while some of you, if you're of a certain vintage, may know of the Rolling Stones, the album, and maybe even the tour, what you may not know is who opened for the Stones that day. The opening acts included the George Thorogood and the Destroyers, the Jay Giles Band, and a little-known R&B artist named Prince. In 1981, Prince was a relative newcomer with a few singles under his belt, best known for his explicit lyrics and his desire to shock. He was the Lil Nas X of his time, if that is any of help to you of a certain vintage. Prince had caught Mick Jagger's eye and was invited to join the Stones for the LA concert dates. Prince took to the stage for the biggest concert of his life, wearing only a trench coat, black bikini briefs, and his guitar. His set didn't last long, three and a half songs to be precise. He was booed and then he was pelted, first with homophobic slurs and then with fruit and fried chicken and beer bottles and pretty much anything else the audience had in their hands. Seeming to side with the audience, the press was less than generous in their reviews of this upstart artist. Following the disastrous incident, Jagger is rumored to have reached out to Prince to console him, sharing stories of the beer bottles that were thrown at him over his career. Stone's guitarist Keith Richards was a bit less charitable, quoted as saying in part, the part that I can share from the pulpit, he's a prince who thinks he's a king already. Good luck to him. Prince would go back to Minnesota and spend 1982 touring small college towns. But he didn't curl up and go away. Far from it. In 1982, he released the double album, 1999, which sold over four million copies, propelled by the popularity of the title song and, of course, Little Red Corvette. In 1984, Prince released Purple Rain, the hit movie and soundtrack album, which sold 13 million copies, spent 24 weeks at number one, and achieved the unprecedented distinction of holding the top single, the top album, and the top movie in the country, not to mention the ire of Tipper Gore. To this day, the album is ranked by Rolling Stone magazine as the eighth greatest rock and roll album of all time. Together with Michael Jackson, Bruce Springsteen, and Madonna, Prince dominated the era. When Prince tragically died in 2016, his influence on rock and roll stands, I believe, on par with Elvis, the Beatles, and Beyonce. From beer bottle beginnings 
to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, from spurned prince to acknowledged king, the story of Prince Rogers Nelson is a story of resilience, of perseverance, of seeing past your doubters, of believing yourself and believing if you keep putting out a great product and keep perfecting your craft, the world will eventually come around and realize the authenticity of your voice, your art, and most of all, your humanity. When you open up the book of Genesis, you wouldn't be wrong to read its opening chapters to signal the spectacular and singular nature of humanity. Out of the chaos comes order, one majestic day of creation after the next, culminating in the sixth and final day with the pinnacle of God's creation, the human being. Let us make man in our image, announces the heavens. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and master it. Not only is every human being created in God's image of infinite worth, but the earth itself is given over to do with as we please. Each one of us fed with the silver spoon of the divine breath. Like Athena born fully formed out of Zeus's head, the opening chapters of Genesis describing the glorious creation of a humanity set on a path to preordain fulfillment. And while such a read is not wrong per se, it's not the only way to read these opening verses of Genesis. And one could, and many have, read the creation story in exactly the opposite way. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. It's a verse that's puzzled commentators over the edges. Who is this us? Who exactly is God speaking with? The rabbis teach that on the sixth day of creation, God took counsel with the celestial retinue of angels, all of whom vehemently objected against the introduction of this new creation, this human being. Don't create the human, the angels protested. There are different versions of the angelic mob scene. In one, the angel of truth opposes cr the creation of humanity because human beings will be filled with lies. The angel of peace objects because we would be warlike and so on and so forth. Another version has the angels trying to dissuade God by revealing all of humanity's future failings. What is man that thou art mindful of them, they say. Why, O oh God, put yourself through such heartache? It's not too late to change your mind. One group after another of angels objected. But God, depending on the version of the story in question, either wiped them out or simply created humanity over the objections of the angels. It's really a stunning counter-narrative to the plain meaning of the creation story, all based incidentally on the curious phrasing of let us make man in our image. First, that humanity was created with the backdrop of a beer bottle throwing mob of angels. Second, that our creation itself is a testament to God's faith in us, that despite our inevitable failings and shortcomings, we were still created. And third, and most importantly, that the unfolding story of humanity is a story not so much about what happens when the red carpet or green garden is rolled out majestically in front of you, but what happens in the face of the doubters and whether one can believe in oneself rise above those voices, proving wrong those who would contend that you should have never taken the stage in the first place. The question on this first Shabbat of the year is not just how you choose to read these first verses of Genesis, 
but rather how you choose to read the whole book of Genesis, if not the whole Torah and the tradition. I find the rabbinic interpretation of the protesting angels and humanity as a comeback kid to be more convincing than the simple meaning of the text because it strikes me as being more consistent with the narrative that's yet to come. At every turn of the Bible, we find the story of a person or a people who have been set back on their heels and then find the spiritual wherewithal to dust themselves off, pick themselves off the ground, and lift themselves up to levels higher than they believed they would otherwise capable of reaching. Think about it. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden just for a flash before they stumble. Their story, and by extension, the story of humanity is arguably as the two of them stand east of Eden, tasked with building a family, rebuilding trust in each other and with God. Or Noah, bruised and battered as he exits the ark after the flood and he becomes a tiller of the soil in face of devastation. He's the first one to plant a vineyard, plan for the future. The Tower of Babel, yes, a story of hubris, but it's really meant to be a story to teach us about after the tower falls, how a diverse humanity of differentiated language finds a way to coexist. What about our patriarchs and matriarchs? Abraham, who leaves the house of his father, puts himself at risk, standing before God, defending Sodom and Gomorrah, called on to sacrifice his son, but still nevertheless becomes the exemplar of our faith, Isaac, living his life after bound on the altar, Jacob building a family even as he is on the run from his brother and cheated by his father-in-law, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, each one contending with the hardships of infertility, marital complexity, and a divine will as capricious as it is hidden. The trials of each of our biblical protagonists differ as do their responses, sometimes with words of prayer, sometimes with resilient laughter, sometimes with heroic deeds, but none of them just do nothing. Each one responds. Cain, Lot's wife, one or two others throw up their hands in despair, and they are the exceptions that prove the rule. Our spiritual heroes don't resign themselves to their fate. They don't pack up and go back to Minnesota. What is the story of Joseph, the tale by which Genesis concludes, if not the story of a young man thrown literally into a pit and left for dead by his brothers, who is nevertheless able to rise up and reach princely heights? Haters, as another music icon teaches, gonna hate. But to stay true to yourself, to persevere, no matter the doubt of others or the self-doubt that comes from within, that's the thread that begins in this first chapter of Genesis and extends into the narrative to come. It's a strength of will that Moses musters when he stands before the burning bush, before Pharaoh and before the people. It's a fortitude of spirit that Miriam demonstrates when she grabs her timbrel to lead the Israelites through the sea from our biblical forebears to the prophet Jeremiah's command to rebuild following exile, to the establishment of rabbinic Judaism, following the destruction of the temple, to the founding of the state of Israel, following the Shoah. This is the DNA of our people, the insistence to push through with our humanity in spite of those forces that would tell us otherwise. There are no guarantees in this world. Not everyone is assured a place in the promised land and you can't always get what you want, but no different than God had faith in us 
over the objections of the angels, we have to have faith in ourselves over the objections of those who don't believe, who think that we should all pack it in and call it a day. And it's a message that finds ready application to all of us here and now. With today's Torah reading, we begin again turning the page literally and literarily on a new year. But we know that today's beginning, it's not new and it's not easy. The change of date or season or Torah reading cycle unto itself cannot promise renewal or redemption. The challenges we all face are formidable and they come from all directions, global, political, social, economic, environmental, spiritual. Who could fault us were we to run backstage and curl up? I remember a mentor of mine explaining to me that sometimes the enormity of the mountain before us can seem so insurmountable that its very presence immobilizes us. It's how many people feel at this moment. It's how I sometimes feel. And when I do, because sometimes I do, I remind myself that it's not the first time I felt this way. I remember the person who told me I would never become a rabbi. I remember the person who said I would never get a PhD. I remember the person who said we were never gonna build this building. I remember the person who said I would never marry my wife. I remember all of those naysayers. And then I put one step forward, and then the next, and then the one after that, just as I have before, just as Adam and Eve did, as Abraham and Sarah and Joseph and Moses and Miriam did before me. This world offers no guarantees, but the credit, to paraphrase Roosevelt, goes only to the one who takes that first step, who actually enters the arena. And ours is a moment that this world is in need of as many good people to enter the arena as possible. It's a message for adults to know, and it's a message that's critical for our children to hear. Our moment is a hard one, but whatever anxieties adults face, our children face them 10 times over, and they don't have the tools or their vocabulary or the context to make sense of this reality. Parents, no different than the God who had faith in us, need to build up the faith of our children and grandchildren. They need to know that in the face of a world that seems insurmountable, we believe in them, that they have the goods, and if they stick with it, and we all work together, we will arrive at a new day. It's not just, after all, the concert with my own father that I remember, but I also remember the night that I entered into another arena, the Barclays Arena, with my daughter some 35 years later to hear not the Stones, but Springsteen. It was two days after Prince had died, the 2016 River Tour to be precise. I remember the moment the River album had just been played and the lights turned purple. And I squeezed my daughter's hand just as my father had held mine. And then in tribute to the man with whom he had dueled for the number one spot throughout the 80s, Bruce strummed the first chord and sang the first verse 
of purple rain, and we all sang together with him. In every generation, there's going to be naysayers, and the strongest doubts often come from within. So let's remember on this Shabbat of new beginnings that new beginnings are really new, and that some princes do grow up to be kings, and some kings get paid tributes by the boss. And maybe, just maybe, if we have as much faith in ourselves and in our children as a king of kings had in all of us way back when, then together we might all make it to the promised land. Shabbat Shalom.